Come on in. Come on. <laughs> Come on. In. Welcome, welcome. The slow road to better. Why do we do the slow road to better? Well, we've been lucky where we can talk about it to our our friends, people here at the Stroke Comeback Center, but now then we can tell more people across the world to learn about it. What is the it that we're talking about? Aphasia. Stroke yeah. survivors. TBI people. Life moves on. Inspiration. Help listeners. That our inspiration of a bridge of hope. I love it. Trying to help each other a lifeline. Part of it also is we started doing it. It's not because we just wanted to tell everyone to see what happened to us. But also we wanted to get better talking ourselves oh, with the phaser. Sure. And we wanted to, one day, it's not going to, the phaser's not leaving it, but we'd like to crush it a little bit. Let's listen in. Listen in. Hey, listeners. It's Melissa here. Just a reminder that what you're about to hear is part two of our conversation with Dr. Peter Turkeltaub. If you want to know more about him or you're not sure what you missed, go back and check out part one. Hope you enjoy. Can I get, can I get a question in? No. Yeah, sure. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay, I would like to know, <laughs> I would like to know an update on your research on inner speech. So maybe for what for people who don't know what that is, what is inner speech, and did you guys figure anything out? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. So um, this is a topic that we got interested in several years ago. Now it's probably you know, maybe six or seven years ago we got interested in this, and um, it's something that came from talking to to you all. Um, that every time I talk to a person with aphasia, um, they would say something like. Well, I can hear the word in my head, but I can't say it. So it, it, I see a couple of you nodding, so you've experienced it. <laughs> Hi. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's different for different people. So some people will say they have an idea of the word, but they, don't, they can't get the exact word in their head. And other people will say really very specifically, I can hear the word in my head. And some people will even say, it's my own voice saying the word in my head. But then when I try to say it out loud, it comes out, it comes out different. Yeah, and so we got interested in this because um, we hear it so much and there was no research on it. Um, and the, the main question was, what does it mean when you hear the voice in your head and it sounds right? And is that useful information that maybe a therapist or a doctor could use to help understand what's going on with your speech? Um, so we started this research, I guess about five years ago now. And um, and basically what we did was we asked people with aphasia to come into the lab and look at pictures and just tell us if they could uh, name the word for that picture in their head. And then we asked them to say the word out loud. And uh, we asked them questions like, uh, how many syllables does the word have? Um, and what letter does it start with? And basically it was a, a lot of analyses um, and what we figured out is, uh, first of all, it's, um, uh, it's very meaningful when you hear a word in your head and then you can't say it out loud. 
And basically what it seems to mean uh, is not surprising, it's sort of not rocket science, but it means that you've retrieved the sound of the word in your, uh, in your head. And so you're much more likely to know how many syllables it has, what the first letter is. When you say that word out loud, you're more likely to get close to the right word than if you feel like you haven't got the word in your head. So that part is just helpful for us to validate what you're telling us. Um, and it just helps clinicians. I talk to a lot of neurologists who have heard this from people with aphasia and they basically dismiss it. They say, well, they don't, they don't really know what's going on. Um, and <laughs> that's a very neurologist thing to say, uh, but, uh, but they're wrong, of course, and you're right. Uh, so that's the first thing that's important that we found. The second part that I think is important is distinguishing what exactly it is. So there's two ideas out there in the literature on inner speech. One is that inner speech is the sounds of words in your head. So it's auditory um, and it's about sounds of words. And the other idea is that when you hear a voice in your head, it's like a, it's like a version of your actual speech, but just inside your head. So that idea is that inner speech is about the motor, the articulation, but it's just that you don't produce the articulation. And Basically what we found was that um, the kind of inner speech that people with aphasia talk about is about sounds and not about a sort of internal idea of the articulation. And so I think that's important because it gives us a sense of what exactly it means when people say they have a word in their head. And the, the hope is that we can then move forward to um, develop treatments where we could ask you uh, for lots of different words, whether you can say that word in your head or not. And depending on whether you can say the word in your head or not, we might, tr we might give you different kind of treatments to improve your ability to say that word. So that's the idea. And that's sort of where we are, Melissa. We're still collecting some data in our new bigger study build. We're still doing some of the same tests that we did to try to get a bigger sample size so we can get more details about this, um, and uh, we're deciding what to do next. Um, and I think you know Mackenzie, uh, who ran most of this work in my lab. Uh, she, she had a faculty appointment at Towson University in Baltimore, and now she's just moved to GW. Um, so she has, a new, oh. yeah, she has a new faculty appointment at GW. That's and, awesome. Yeah, and she's great, uh, uh, as I think some of you know. And so she's also trying to figure out what she's going to do next uh, with this. Yeah, it's exciting times. Dr. Mack is busy these days. I know I asked you this before, but where do you think we are in terms of the science where thoughts and words can be extracted from people's heads if they can't say the, the words? Yeah. So there's, there's been a lot of excitement about that work. Um, the, the work, there's two sort of kinds of work on that. Uh, one is with MRIs, uh, where you, you can get a sense of words that people are thinking of from the pattern of activity um, in the brain, but it's not very accurate and it's not realistic to think that we would have people walking around with MRIs on their heads to do that. So um, the, I think the more interesting work is uh, using implanted electrodes. These are used in people who need to get neurosurgery to have a piece of their brain removed and they record, they put electrodes on the brain and record information from them. 
And while they have the electrodes in, you can do experiments um, like trying to decode speech. And so there have been a couple of studies where you ask people to say sentences and you use the activity in those electrodes to try and guess what they're, what they're saying, essentially. Uh, there's even been some where you can take the activity in the brain and put it through a speech synthesizer and try to produce the sentence that they might have been uh, trying to say. Uh, and so it's really interesting. I mean, it's really exciting uh, work. It's very, very early in development. Um, and I think the particular issue so far for people with aphasia is that the place where they've had the best success or where they've demonstrated some success in being able to do this is in the motor cortex, the part of the brain that actually produces the articulation for the speech. But most people with aphasia have a problem earlier in finding the word or programming the motor cortex. And so the particular strategy that they're using right now <clears throat> might help some other people who can't get speech out, um, like people who are locked in after a brainstem stroke and they can't speak because of that. Um, but it's not likely to help people with aphasia strategy that they're using right now. But that, you know, but these are all stepping stones. It takes years and years to develop these technologies. And so it may be possible at some point to find another place in the brain where we could decode speech for people who have aphasia. Um, and I think that would be, you know, that would be interesting. I, I, I sort of personally wonder whether, um, whether it's ever gonna be practical um, to do that, uh, but it may be for certain, for certain people. What about uh, said in a stroke, uh, sh uh, sometimes like a stroke, uh, uh, Chinese, uh, uh, like a, a Cantonese, Mandarin, and English, like a, was was she Mandarin or Cantonese or or English or both? You're asking, are you asking whether you can figure out from the brain activity what language a person is speaking? Uh, like is both or like a, like a person, person is stroke, right? Did, did, did he or she, uh, uh, must said, uh, Cantonese or Cantonese and Mandarin or Cantonese? Cantonese, Mandarin, and English. You're asking how how the languages a person knows mm -hmm. relates to this. Yeah, I think there's yeah. not, there's not enough research on that in terms of okay. in, in terms of these decoding experiments where you try to use the brain activity to predict what a person is saying. I'm not a, I, I'm not aware that anyone has looked at people who are bilingual or have second languages in okay. those kinds of experiments. There's lots of research on how multiple languages can be in the brain at the same uh, time, um, but not, I haven't seen any of these kinds of experiments. That okay. That. Yeah, I, I was in English or Bulgarian, and sometimes I want to say something and I realize Oh no, that's Bulgarian. I I need a new need a new term for that. <laughs> yeah, it's indeed. So what do you do when? I, okay, I'm there and I want to say something, 
but I can't say it. What? How do you? How do you do that? You know? How do? How do I say that then? You know? Every every day I get a little bit better, but it's very very hard. Know the word, but I can't say it. Oh, so you feel like you have the word in your head, but it won't right. come out. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the things that um, we have a little bit of evidence for, and I think maybe this is common sense, but uh, if you already have the word in your head, uh, cueing with the sound of the word, with the first sound of the word, can sometimes be very helpful. Um, we haven't actually, we had thought about doing you know, research specifically on this to demonstrate if that was an effective strategy. It seems to be, um, I, I don't have data to support that, but it, I think that's one, one thing that you can do. Uh, but you need somebody to help you with that. The, the other thing, you, there are self-cueing strategies also. So if you can remember the first letter of the word, maybe writing the first letter out and getting yourself started with that could be helpful. It is different strategies to take, yeah. But from a therapy standpoint, the, um, one of the ideas would be that if, if you feel like you have the word in your head and you feel like you can say the word in your head, but it won't come out, then uh, our research says that you have retrieved what's called the phonology of the word, which is like the abstract sound of the word, the sound image of the word in your head. And then there's a step where you need to translate that to a speech plan. And so the idea is that the therapy you for that word should focus specifically on that step, translating the sound to the speech. And so that would be through tools like cueing and, um, and repetition of the, of the word rather than other strategies that are meant to you know, get you to be able to think of the word in the first place. Um, so that's, that would be the idea. Okay. Thank you. Hey, um, Melissa, I totally forgot this. What's the name of that word that you, I, I asked to, to say that word again? Uh, Neuropsychologist. Um, yeah, but then my question was, does it end? So what does it, what does the word mean again? Neuropsychology? Yeah, what does it mean again? That's the psychologist who does the cognitive testing to understand how your memory and attention and other abilities are working. Okay, so I guess my question then would I put, I wrote down, does it end? But I guess you can just continue to get better if you keep going, right? Yeah, sometimes um, different doctors have different strategies on this. So sometimes people will do an, a new neuropsych evaluation every year or two to sort of see how things are going. Very often you'll stop doing it after a few years because the information becomes less useful. Uh, but different people have different strategies on this. They, they, I guess they, maybe they think that that's as good as you're gonna get, but remember that Forrest Gump always got better and better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so uh, I, you know, there, you know, you guys know there is this idea out there that you stop getting better after a year or, or two um, after your stroke or your injury. And we all know that that's not true. But what sometimes is true is that you can't observe the changes, the improvement on the tests that the neuropsychologists have. Uh, sometimes the tests just aren't good enough to see the, the improvement over time that you're experiencing in your daily life. 
And so even if you don't see an improvement on the tests, it doesn't mean you're not getting better. Uh, it just means that the, it means that the neuropsychologists can't measure it on their test. Um, and so you might be improving in your ability to compensate in one way or another. You might be improving in terms of your vocabulary, but maybe not the words that they happen to use on the test. There's lots of ways that you can be improving without even seeing a change on those, on those neuropsych tests. So a doctor may decide it's not useful anymore, not because, not because you're not improving, but just because the tests can't measure it anymore. So one of the things that I try to do in clinic is, um, and this I think is maybe sometimes frustrating for patients, but you know, a year or two after the stroke, uh, sometimes the improvements aren't as obvious when I'm just talking to a person. And so my goal is to find a test or two where the person isn't perfect um, so that we can see changes over time if they're occurring. And uh, I think sometimes that's frustrating because it seems like I'm focusing on what a person can't do. Um, but that's not, that's not why I do it, of course. I mean, the, the reason is... I'm looking for the opportunity to see changes uh, over time by picking tests that are particularly hard for a person. I want to give you the opportunity to give a plug for research. Uh, I know that's what you do and recruiting subjects is always a challenge for researchers. And I think we have a lot of survivors who are interested in doing research and giving back to the aphasia community and don't know exactly how to go about finding um, opportunities in their area. So um, could you tell us a little bit Gosh, about so that? Thoughtful, Melissa. I, oh. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so I mean, my um, just to say my feeling about research, and I am biased because I am an aphasia researcher, but I, I really feel like um, aphasia research is important for people with aphasia to, to participate in for themselves and for the community. I feel like it's, it's a really good way for people to give back to the community. Um, it's one of the very few things that the brain injury gave them the ability to do that they didn't have before, um, that you guys are able to contribute in a way that I can't, that Melissa can't, that other people uh, can't, um, and it makes you special. Um, and so I think participating in research um, can, uh, it, you know, it gives you the ability to do something that you couldn't otherwise do. Um, the other thing is I think it's usually a very positive experience for people um, in that it's uh, engaging and um, generally you're working with supportive people and learning about yourself. See, Chris walked away. He's already done it with us. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, so yeah, so we are starting to recruit again. We took a break uh, during the pandemic, but we're starting to recruit again. So if you know anybody um, or if anybody listening is interested, um, you can look us up at uh, cognitiverecoverylab.com. That's our website. And there's buttons you can click to volunteer. Uh, we're doing, the main project that we're doing is called the BUILD Project. It stands for Brain-Based Understanding of Individual Language Differences After Stroke. And it's what I talked about earlier. The idea is that everybody is different after stroke, and we want to understand why. And we want to understand why some people recover just the way they'd like and other people don't. And the hope is that'll help us come up with treatments that can take the people 
whose brains, for whatever reason, don't support a good recovery and make their brains into uh, brains that are more like the people who have a good recovery. So that's what we're doing. It, it involves a couple of um, three, four, sometimes five sessions of detailed language testing, and then one MRI. And then we can have a report meeting afterwards where I tell you about all the results and we go over your MRIs, we look at your brain activity, we look at your brain connectivity so you can learn about, about what's going on with your brain. So that doing, um, we're gonna slowly ramp up uh, recruitment again over the, over the fall. And then <clears throat> if you're interested in aphasia research more broadly, or if you're not in the, in the DC area, there's lots of universities where there's aphasia research going on. Uh, one good strategy is just to look up local universities, um, or you can look at clinicaltrials.gov. A lot of research is listed up there. And there's all different kinds of studies to, to participate in. There's studies uh, that are looking at uh, different types of therapy and which therapy is the best type of therapy for people. There's other studies that are sort of surveys about quality of life and, and other aspects of aphasia. Um, and then there's MRI research, there's brain stimulation research, there's all different kinds of uh, research. Do you, um, do, would you, do you do the, um, uh, the aphasia, so the, the word, yeah, aphasia, like, like you could go, you say you started doing the, uh, I don't know, the, the classes again, or your information, you're finding it out from the uh, people with aphasia. Um, do they come to like your 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 work, or can you you do it online now? Yeah, we're trying to do some uh, some of the testing online. We can do some of the basic testing online, but some of it just has to be done in person because the tests that we do are really precise, and we need you in front of our computer uh, or face to face with a person to do them. So we can do them at Georgetown. We can do them at NRH, um, or we could uh, potentially come uh, come to your home if we need to. And then the other question I would have is, um, I can I can't have a, a MRI. I can mm -hmm. only have CT. Do you guys do those? We so almost all of our research is uh, requires an MRI, but occasionally we will do something that doesn't, um, and so it never hurts to contact us to find out. Okay, I got. Uh, shrap bullets or whatever inside yeah. my, so I can't. Yeah, it wouldn't be safe to do an MRI. I do want to mention just one other aspect of the research that we're trying to build up, um, which is, um, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's huge disparities in stroke and aphasia outcomes that have to do with racial identity. Um, so the African-American community has, in general, uh, have poorer outcomes from aphasia and from stroke in general. And uh, part of the research now that we're trying to build into our bigger study is understanding why that happens based on the brain factors, um, which we think can be really informative in terms of what, you know, what the issue is, and maybe give us targets to try to intervene to improve outcomes for the African-American community. Um, so I mentioned that specifically because um, you know, we're trying to make our recruitment as equitable as we possibly can. Uh, and so in order to make that research work, we need uh, participants of 
uh, you know, of all backgrounds um, to come into our research. And I just really, really, really want to thank you for your time and your energy and your dedication to Asia community because I really appreciate it. All right. So thank you so much. And we're going to wrap it up on this episode of The Slow Road to Better. Our lawyers made us say this. Disclaimers. What about disclaimers? Your opinion, the group opinion is not valid. Well, it is, but it's it's valid, valid. but I'm having a disclaimer so that we don't get in trouble. Yes. Doctors. Doctors. Who's doctor? Theirs. Um, They. They. Their doctor. Yes. All right. Yes. So if people hear something on this podcast, you should ask your doctor. Doctor. Amen.